Well, how would you know if God was pleased with you? How would you know if he's on your side? How would anyone know whether God was pleased with them? Uh, how do you know if God cherishes you, if he favours you, if he values you? How do you know if you're one of his? Can you know? Can anyone really deep down know? I, you know, Is it just something that you want but you can't have? Or, and I think depending on who you are or who you ask, the answers to those questions are many and varied. Uh, for some, they might point to their blessed life. You know, everything's working for them at the moment. Life's going well. They believe in God, and and they think because they lack pain, uh, you know, the way they're getting ahead in life, the business is booming. Uh, they've they've now got an HSV or an FPV in the driveway, depending if you're a Ford or Holden kind of guy. Uh, you know, it's, it's the sign of God's blessing. You've got the McMansion, you know, with 2.4 kids, the average, and 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 isn't that the attitude of the middle-class Bible Belt Christians in Sydney, the Hills District and the Sutherland Shire and maybe even in some parts around here, that, you know, things are going well, God must be pleased with me. Uh, it's obvious. Well, for some, it's their own confidence in their performance. There's a sense of entitlement because they've done the right thing and they deserve God to be pleased with them. You know, they've been the right kind of person. They haven't done anything really evil. They've kept the Ten Commandments, whatever they are. They can't quite remember them, but I'm sure you haven't broken any. And so they just assume that, that God is for them, that he's pleased with them, that he's with them and will have them. Uh, for others, it's their religious devotion. Uh, they've been regular and consistent in their religious observances, the amount they've given, the amount they've sacrificed for God and for worthy causes and, and they're sure that they're going to get some sort of payback, some sort of recompense uh, for their efforts. You think of you know, the Muslim who's obeying the five pillars of Islam, you know, praying five times a day towards, uh, towards Mecca, you know, reciting the Quran to prove to Allah that they've memorised what he says, uh, that they've given alms to the poor. 2.5% of everything they get in goes out to someone. Uh, they're doing ritual washings and things. It's that... I've done all this. You owe me. I must be yours. You must be pleased with me. But I think that can be amongst any uh, faith group as well. And many Christians think, you know, I've gone to church all my life and I've done this and I've said my prayers and I know the Lord's Prayer and I've. God owes me. He must be pleased with me. I'm one of His. Again, it's that sense of entitlement. Uh, for some, they just think of their feelings and go, you know what? I feel like God's with me. I don't, I don't feel guilty about anything. I'm happy, and so everything's all right, and God, God's all right, and we're all right together, and just happy. For the Israelites of old, the sure sign that God was pleased with them and that he was with them was something different to all that. It was the temple. They had it. It was there, this enormous edifice that stood in the centre of Jerusalem, the city of God. Uh, it was a physical and tangible sign of the presence of God with his people. They felt safe because... Well, the building was there. They knew that God was with them, and there in front of them was the proof. Uh, I mean, after all, isn't that where, where your sins get forgiven? You, you bring your sacrifices, and, and uh, we've given all our hard earnings. Uh, he must be pleased with us. And especially since, as we saw earlier in, in Isaiah, the Assyrian invasion had happened, and it had failed at the gates of this very city. They wiped out everyone else. They'd even wiped out all of Israel apart from Jerusalem, God must be with us. The angel of death went out from here, put to death 185,000 Assyrian warriors in one night without a shot being fired. 
Of course God is on our side. And yet if they'd listened to Isaiah, they should have known that the temple was going to be no source of protection. For within a hundred years, God would judge them by the Babylonians, who at this very moment were just a little nation thousands of miles away, and yet God through his prophet says that they are coming. And we saw that turning point where he says the Babylonians will come and they won't be stopped at the gates and everything, temple included, is going to burn. Isaiah 64 verse 11. Our holy and glorious temple where our fathers praised you has been burned with fire and all that we treasured lies in ruins. And yet despite that warning, even right up to the point where the Babylonians arrived and were besieging Jerusalem and were about to breach the walls and rip the whole thing down, you know what the people of Jerusalem were saying to one another? You know, it's okay. It's not going to happen because we got the temple. Uh, God's with us. He's pleased with us. He must be. Look, there's the structure that proves it. And so the prophet Jeremiah, a hundred years after Isaiah's prophecy, he's living at the dawn of the Babylonian invasion and he says this in Jeremiah 7. Do not trust in deceptive words and say, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Look, you are trusting in deceptive words that are worthless. Will you steal and murder? Will you commit adultery and perjury? Will you burn incense to Baal and follow other gods you've not known and then come and stand before me in this house which bears my name and say we're safe? Safe to do all these detestable things? And so as we come to the end of Isaiah today, the final words of this incredible prophecy which, well, Isaiah's life spanned 40, 60 years that he was uh, saying this message, the question still remains, what hope can there be? What hope can there be if God is going to come and destroy this very last vestige of the sign of his presence and pleasure amongst us? What hope is there? How could they ever know if God is pleased with them? How can we know if God will ever be pleased with us, if he's for us? And there's an answer given And as we round out the book today, we're going to be here three things. We're going to hear some really, really fantastic news uh, of what God's got in store. But then we get to hear, well, who, who gets to have the benefits of that good news and who doesn't? You know, is it for everyone, for some people? Who's it for? Uh, And finally, we're given the most important choice we'll ever have to make in our lives. That's how Isaiah ends. So what's the good news of God? Well, it's in fact fantastic news. That God doesn't need a temple in order to dwell with us and be pleased with us. Uh, Why? Because his plan is to knock down and rebuild the entire universe. There you go. I don't know if you've done a knock down and rebuild on your house. God's going to knock down and rebuild everything. Uh, And there won't be second guessing as to whether God is with his people. He'll be physically there with him, living with them. It's an entirely new start. Now, we're going to go back to Isaiah chapter 65 to see that. So if you want to turn back to Isaiah 65 and verse 17. What has God got in store? He says, Behold, I will create a new heavens and a new earth. And if you've got your your Bible reading, hearing glass on, a lot of this is going to sound familiar 
though you might not have ever read this chapter. Behold, I'll create a new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. Be glad and rejoice forever in what I create, for I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. I'll rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more. Never again will there be in it an infant who lives out but a few days or an old man who does not live out his years. In fact, he who dies at a hundred will be thought a mere youth. Uh, That was hilarious at at the 8 o'clock congregation. Uh, Some of them are getting pretty close to that. You young'uns out there. (laughs) Uh, He who dies at a hundred will be thought a mere youth. He who fails to reach a hundred will be considered accursed. They will build houses and dwell in them. They'll plant vineyards and eat their fruit. No longer will they build houses and others live in them, or plants and others eat. For as the days of a tree, so will be the days of my people. My chosen ones will long enjoy the work of their hands. They will not toil in vain or bear children doomed to misfortune, for they'll be a people blessed by the Lord, they and their descendants with them. Before they call, I'll answer. While they're speaking, I'll hear that the wolf and the lamb will feed together and the lion will eat straw like the ox. But dust will be the serpent's food. Neither They will neither harm nor destroy on my holy mountain, says the Lord. God is going to knock down and he's going to rebuild the entire universe, an entire new creation. And at one level, you just got to sit back and just kind of enjoy the ride and feel the, the joy and the love and the gladness of, of what God has in store. It's, you're not meant to sort of delve into it and say, well, okay, well, this means that heaven's going to be specifically like this. It's, it's get the feel, get the vibe, if you like. Uh, you could just read it and get that sense of joy, but there are some specifics that I just want to del- delve into for a moment. Because he's saying it's, it's unending joy for those who are his and for those who are there. Verse 18, be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. It says joy for, for everyone who's there. It's not going to be, you know, boring, repetitious kind of, why are we here singing the same old harp songs on uh, fluffy clouds? <laughs> yeah, wouldn't we rather be doing something else? No, no, it's meant to be joyful. And it's also a joy for God himself. Verse 19, I'll rejoice over this new Jerusalem. I'm going to take delight in my people. I mean, isn't one of the best things in life when you're just enjoying time with each other? And that's the picture here of this family reunited and it's all good. And he says there'll be an end to sadness. There'll be no more weeping or crying. That sounds a bit like, well, what does that sound like? Have you heard that before? Yeah, Revelation 21. No more mourning or weeping, crying or pain. The old order of things will have passed away. No more mourning over lost friends and lost family. No more, you know, losing things and people. And why? Because death will be dealt with. Verse twenty: Never again will there be an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not live out his years. You know, the hundred will be thought a mere youth. He who fails to reach a hundred will be considered accursed. It's not right when people are cut down in their prime. But the real problem is not just premature death, but but death itself, and and death itself has now been overcome in Jesus Christ. He says life here in this paradise is going to be completely secure. Yeah, we live and we toil in this world for things that wither and fade and break and fail and perish. Even my brand new 3D printer is in Melbourne for repairs. (laughs) 
And it's not just because I got it from Aldi. <laughs> but that's just the nature of this world, isn't it? That everything fades. Everything spoils. Everything perishes. We live in a world full of decay. At a you know, cosmic level, at a microscopic level, at, at a personal level, just... You know, with things we love and we cling to them, we're gone and, you know, our kids have Barbies and, oh, but his leg's broken and, Dad, can you fix it? Not been. <laughs> no. <laughs> or you can have a legless Barbie. What do you want? Yeah, <laughs> sorry. He says even work in this place of joy is going to be deeply satisfying all the time. I mean, how often does work, in fact, just the life feel like, a drudgery and it's pointless and you just go on and on and on. It's kind of like you feel like you're one of those painters on the harbour bridge, you know, who start at one end and they start painting all their way across and they get to the other end and by the time they've got there, it's rusting back at the other end. So what's their job is to go back and start again. It never ends. It just goes on and on. And so the same guy has been painting the harbour bridge for 50 years in a row. He's just never stopped. And and that can feel like life, isn't it? You just It's pointless. It just... Futile, doing the same things over and over and over and again and, and really getting nowhere. It's also fleeting and futile. But what God has in store is going to bring security and plenty and nothing will be in vain. There'll be harmony. Even natural-born enemies will be at peace. That's the imagery of the wolf and the lamb in verse 25, feeding together. It's not that they're eating each other simultaneously. <laughs> you know, lambs grow sharp teeth. No, it's peace. The lion is going to eat straw like the ox. Now you might remember again, thinking of your, you know, if you've got your Bible reading, that he's promised exactly the same thing back in Isaiah 11 in one of those famous Christmas prophecies. You know, uh, and for you steak lovers out there, I don't think that that means we're all going to be vegan in this new life. It's not the end of bacon. <laughs> it's a picture of harmony of of enemies reconciled. And chapter 11 was all tied up with the one that God would send upon whom uh, the spirit of the Lord would rest, who would come with wisdom and justice and bring joy and peace and harmony, so much so that the wolf will lie down with the lamb and the calf with the lion, etc. Although there is one creature who doesn't get a Guernsey in the new creation. Who's not there? Which animal's not there? The snake. Now, is it because God had a bad experience with snakes as a kid? You know, he went to Grand's farm, like our kids did over summer, and there was a brown snake apparently behind the shed, and uh, Grand said, don't go down to the shed because there's snakes and you'll die. Uh, and so now, well, we don't want to go to Grand's farm anymore. <laughs> God, if, you know, did God have a bad experience and so he's got this thing? No. no. Again, if you've got your, your Bible reading glasses on or you've, You've got that handy Bible cross-reference rainbow if you're away on the camp that we saw last week with the 65,000 cross-references that the Bible has to itself. Uh, you'd know it's a reference back to Genesis chapter 3 and the whole problem of evil in the world, which was caused by the great serpent, Satan himself, who brought about hatred and distrust and destruction by his lies. And you might remember that God cursed the serpent as part of the, the curse on everything. But he cursed the serpent specifically. He said, you know, you will always eat the dust of the earth and you're going to be destroyed by the serpent crusher, the one who will come, who will stomp on your head. And here in Isaiah, with this picture of eternity, here's the picture that Satan is finally vanquished. 
He's gone. He is no more. He's done. It's another way of saying that there'll be no more evil in God's eternity. There'll be no more sin. There'll be no more not loving God or not loving your neighbour as yourself. For the great deceiver will be gone. See, what will heaven be like? People always kind of ask that question. What will we going to be doing there? Well, it's not specifics, but that's what it'll be like. Here is the phenomenal promise of God. God with his people in joy and bliss and with all the things that stand against us destroyed, sin, death, the devil, all gone, with only joy and gladness left. Now, how on earth could anyone think that if God has a future like that planned, then that they could now contain God in a, in a little temple and demand it for reassurance you know, of his presence and his pleasure? It's dumb to think, well, okay, we've got this little building, that's why we know anything. And that's the point that God makes as the final chapter opens. 66 verse 1. This is what the Lord says. Heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you're going to build for me? He says, I'm going to knock down and rebuild the entire universe. And you think you can make this tiny little thing after I've you know, taken the one that you've got away, which you know, is impressive by world standards, but whoop-de-doo, you know. Has not my hand made all these things since so they came into being, declares the Lord? You, you think you can box God? You think you can build him some cute little building to house him and, he, and you'll feel safe and secure because God will feel safe and secure? You know, he won't get rained on? Uh, think again, the whole universe is not big enough to contain him. But I only think Isaiah is just talking about housing. Uh, God is far greater. He's far more powerful. He's far more incredible. He's more immense than you can ever imagine. You know, he can do more than we ever think that he can. He is more than we can fathom. He is more faithful and wise than we give him credit for. His thoughts, as we heard a couple of weeks ago in Isaiah 55, are higher than our thoughts. He has a majesty and a splendour that are matchless. You don't need a temple. You need God. But if that's what God's like and if that's the future that he's bringing out, who is it for? Who's fit for him? Who, who could he possibly be pleased enough with that they get to have that eternity? You know, we're all part of this deluded, sad, pointless humanity which has been led astray, that's heading for the grave, which I don't know about you, I, I make mistakes every day and I think, why did you say that? Why did you do that? You know, is there anyone God values? Is there anyone that God could esteem? Is there anyone who God could hold in high enough regard to take into that home? Well, he tells us there is. Have a look. Verse 2, halfway through. This is, this is what God, who the universe can't contain him, says. This is the one I esteem. And if you hear nothing else today, hear this. This is the one I esteem, says God. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and who trembles at my word. You want to know if God's pleased with you? You want to know who God values? That's who God thinks is important, who he says he's with and who he says for that turn. Someone who's humble, contrite in spirit and who trembles at his word.
And by the way, there's not three different groups. Yeah, they've got the humble people over there, they're his, and then there's the contrite in spirit people, and then there's the, the tremblers back there shaking. You know, kind of, it's one group of people, right? These are three characteristics of, of the people that God esteems. Some more humble, contrite in spirit, and trembling at his word. Now, what are those things? I mean, they're not things that the, the world values and loves, are they? Humility? You know, it's the very opposite of what we say to each other and what our, we bring our kids up to be. You know? Who wants the most humble kids in the universe? You know, kind of, uh, no, we, that's not what society is promoting. We promote pride. You know, we say take pride in yourself. We've got to take pride in ourselves. It's the proud people who get ahead in life, who get the girl, who get the boy, who get the home, who get the SUV, who get, you know, who get life. Humility, that, that's for wimps. We don't want to be dependent on anyone, which really is what humility is about, isn't it? Acknowledging that you, you can't make it. You need someone else's help. We're taught to take pride in, in our looks and in our achievements, in our prowess, to look to our strengths. And so the world's bemused by a God who says, well, I don't value pride. In fact, I hate it. Because the problem is, in fact, that, that pride is the very heart of sin. You know, that is the lie that we believed from Satan in the first place, that, that we could be like God. We could be as important as God. We could be proud of ourselves. And we could be the determiners of our own lives and destinies, despite the fact that it's just empirically wrong. You know, for our lives are always influenced and controlled by other people and forces outside of ourselves. You know, we can't control whether we've got a job next week or whether the superannuation fund is still going to be there, you know, in 20, 30, or well, two years' time, depending on who you are. Uh, you know, we, we don't determine much about our lives at all. Despite the fact that our pride and, and our wanting to be the best and, and have what we want to have is basically the cause of every conflict and savagery in this world. Now, you think about it, all the troubles of this world stem from pride from the petty squabbles that we have in our families and you know, from the kids beating each other on the head saying, no, I want that towards mine, give back. You know, right, you know, the national level things and who's going to get the money from the, the pool of the economy kind of thing and uh, you know, outright war and bloodshed internationally. Pride is the heart of it all. What God values is humility, especially humility before him. Not thinking ourselves worthy or that God is lucky to have me on his side. Yeah, bully for me. God, yeah, you deserve me. <laughs> Not having that sense of entitlement or attitude of I deserve from God, but instead being people who humbly submit to his leadership, who humbly depend on him for everything, who humbly acknowledge our entire lives and, and our future is in his hands, humbly thanking him for his provisions and, and humbly coming to an end of ourselves in terms of trying to earn our way into his good graces. We can never do it. Why, why do we think we can? It'll never work. You can't earn God's favour. In fact, in the end, you bring nothing to the table in terms of things that God ought to be impressed by. And so what you and I are going to have to do is just trust his promises, especially that you need Jesus to get you there. God esteems those who are humble. He esteems those who are contrite in spirit. Uh, that is, that they acknowledge their need for forgiveness. They know that not everything's right, that their failures and 
losers and they make mistakes. Admitting that we're weak, admitting to him that we're, it's really hard to admit your fault, isn't it? But admitting to God that we're weak, that we're easily led astray from him uh, and, and his ways by our own desires and by the temptations of the things around us, by peer pressure. Being people who ask for forgiveness and mercy, not because we've learnt rote prayers, you know, forgive us our sins for we forgive those who sin against you. That's a great prayer to know. But understanding that Jesus is teaching that because we're failures and, and we're deeply convicted of our failings and that without him there's no hope because we're fallen, broken people. Being people who are willing to say sorry to others and say sorry to God for our failings and acknowledge our part in the problems of this world. Indeed, humbly fleeing to Jesus Christ, the suffering servant who Isaiah has been prophesying about chapter over chapter, who would be pierced for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities, by whose wounds we are healed. Humility, contriteness of spirit, and the final characteristic of the one that God esteems is that they tremble at his word. That is, they're in awe of what he has to say. Not that they, you know, it's not about sticking your Bible on the top shelf of your bookshop above all other books at home, like you know, the Muslims do with their Qurans and things. That's that's got nothing to do with being in awe and trembling at God's word. No, it's treating God's words in Scripture with reverence and respect, doing what they say, humbly submitting our lives to, to God's white-hot examination and testing ourselves that we, we're living by it. I mean, here is the sword of the Spirit. Right? In Ephesians 6. And yeah, it's a double-edged sword which cuts right through the crap and gets to the very heart of our lives, our souls, and what they're about. In Hebrews 4, we read, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. And so those who tremble at God's word are those who are moved to action when he commands something. They are those who are moved to tears when he rebukes them. They are those who are moved to repentance when their lives and sin are exposed. They are those who are moved to prayer when he speaks of our need for him and our need to rely on him. They're moved to thanksgiving and praise when they hear of his provision and his promises. That, that's who God esteems. Those who are humble and contrite in spirit and who tremble at his word. And so I guess the question, the obvious question is, is that you? Is it you? Yeah. Yeah, you've got to ask ourselves that. Is it, am I one who God would see as humble, contrite in spirit, and who trembles at his word? And to give us a clearer picture, he gives the opposite. Okay, okay, that's what God esteems, but... Who does God not esteem? Who does God despise? Well, and he says, it's pretty much everyone else. From the religiously pious who bow and scrape to show their devotion and prove to God how serious they are by their religion, or who, those who think they're safe because they've earned their way, 
to those who have that sense of entitlement because they're morally superior, thinking God doesn't have enough on them to convict them of anything, through to the idolaters who are living for anything and everything that's not God, who are living for frauds, for lies. I mean, Isaiah's spoken a lot about that, hasn't he? To those who just outright reject God and his ways and live for themselves. And listen, listen to God's vitriol. Verse 3. Whoever sacrifices a bull is like one who kills a man. Whoever offers a lamb is like one who breaks a dog's neck. Whoever makes a grain offering is like one who presents pig's blood. And whoever burns memorial incense is like one who worships an idol. They have chosen their own ways, and their souls delight in their abominations. And so I will choose harsh treatment for them, and will bring upon them what they dread. For when I called, no one answered, and when I spoke, no one listened. They did evil in my sight and chose what displeases me. And so there's the choice that we're left with, right? Will we be the humble, the contrite in spirit who tremble at God's word? Or will we be those who are proud of our achievements, whether religious or moral, who who go to God with a sense of entitlement and deserving? Yeah, God owes us. And he's saying we have to choose. And the choice is going to mean real differences in our lives now and how, how we proceed from it. This is not about the past. It's about the future. And the rest of the chapter pans out what, what that choice to be a trembler at God's word is going to mean. He says those who tremble at God's word, I'm not going to read through this, but those who tremble at God's word are going to persevere in the face of mockery and hatred and slander, knowing that God's enemies are going to meet their end. You see that in verses 5 and 6. He says those who tremble at God's word know that, that God's going to deliver on all his wonderful promises and they trust him. They live by faith, as we heard uh, through the book of Habakkuk on the weekend away. They, they, they know God's promises of this new creation are not in vain. They're not empty. God always fulfills. He, he will bring about that promise of chapter 65. You can see that from verses 7 through 13. And he will bring about the final judgment on the ungodly. And finally, he says, those who tremble at God's word, they get on with God's mission. They see that God's glory is what really matters in life and they think, well, I want my purposes to be on about what he's on about. They see with new eyes the point of life and the true needs of a lost and dying world. They look on the ones who do not know Jesus with sadness rather than contempt. And they give their lives in love to see God glorified by having people turn from their ways, to turn and be part of this group that's heading for heaven. And you can see that in verses 19 to 21. He talks about this. You know, this is the true sacrifice when you, when you bring someone to Jesus Christ as a disciple, whether kicking and screaming well on the back of a cart or a donkey or a camel or whatever. You know, or in New Testament terms, it's, it's those who hold out the word of life the gospel of truth, those who you know, call us to come from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of Jesus, the son God loves, to turn from the broad road that leads to destruction and enter through the narrow gate that leads to life, to have all their needs and all their future met by the Saviour who has given all that they might live if they will come in humility to him, in contriteness of spirit and tremble at his word. So which one are you? Are you the one that God esteems or not? 
Are you the one that God's pleased with or not? This is the one I esteem, says the Lord, the one who is humble and contrite in spirit and who trembles at my word. May God make it so that each and every one of us is that kind of person. But even more so, that that he sends out his spirit to prepare the ground as we head into our term of outreach now where, where we seek to win the community for Jesus Christ. That he'll prepare hearts to hear the message of Jesus that those who we're friends with, our neighbours, those we haven't met yet, those from different backgrounds and different socio-economic levels, will we'll hear the promise of God, the love of the Lord Jesus Christ, the sacrifice he has made, and they'll come in faith and repentance to him and receive this promise. Let's pray. Our Father, we stand in awe of you, not just the creator of this universe, but the recreator, the one who can destroy everything and make it again. And we pray that we will be those who you esteem, that we would be humble, that we would not rely on ourselves or our own performance to impress you, that we would know that we bring nothing except our own helplessness and sin. And we pray that we might receive mercy as we turn to Jesus, the Saviour. We pray that we would be those who are contrite in spirit and we would be those who tremble at your word, who when you speak, we answer. When you give us a promise, we believe it. Who when you give us a command, we obey it. Who when we hear a warning, that we heed it. Who love you and serve you all the days of our lives. For your glory. We pray for our community that you would bring many to know you. Please do your saving work. Please bless our efforts in this next term with the events that we have. We pray that many would come and hear and turn. And we pray that not we won't just rely on that, but we would go and we would speak of you and your love that others might have life and enjoy this eternity which you promise for those who will humbly repent and turn to you. Amen. We're going to stand and sing uh, our next song.